Well, I hope everybody can hear me well. Uh, we're going to continue with our study in First uh, Peter. Uh, we are uh, in the uh, seventh imperative. So if you haven't been with us, Val, uh, you got a lot of catch up to do, brother. But uh, we got First Peter chapter five. We're in verse six and seven. Imperative number seven. Did everybody memorize this scripture like I told you to? I'm going to embarrass somebody. And have you quote it to me? Now, Chris has already quoted it to me, so I know she knows the verse. Did anybody remember, memorize this verse? Let's do this, and we can do this. First Peter chapter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, which no better in life and in... A... <laughs> Let me quote it, and you listen. Terry made fun of my lack of technology from the pulpit last Sunday. No, no, no. no. I wasn't laughing at you. I was talking about the technology. First Peter chapter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due season, testing all his cares upon you, for he careth for you. I'm the King James, New King James guy. I am humbled. I am humbled. Anyway, if you can see from the board, but those in the class can, we looked at what humility was. We defined it from the Greek word, and the Greek word is tapenu. And the word means to uh, attitude of a graced heart. It certainly means that we to lower ourselves. We're to be brought low in need. We are to be dependent, not independent from God. And it is uh, it is a an attitude of the heart that is a learned behavior. It is a freeing behavior as we trust Him and His sovereignty as we cast our cares on him, as we cast our anxieties and thankfulness on him. Uh, it is a God-glorifying attitude of a heart that God gives his people. It is a Christ-honoring attitude of the heart. And it is one of the components of humility, as we said, is that it is one of the components of humility is that it is something we need to wait and look to him for. We looked at multiple verses. I gave you those last week. Uh, for time's sake, I'm not going to do that again. But it is a duty. We said that it was a, uh, it calls for immediate action. And it is a voluntary acceptance. It's not a forced coercion, but it's voluntary acceptance. It's not a passive, oh, well, I guess I've got to uh, be humble and uh, lower myself under God's hand. But it is uh, it inspires us and it ensure, assures us as we uh, as we humble ourselves uh, under his mighty hand. And so we talked about that in great detail last week. Uh, so uh, and then we went on to say that it, we do that under his mighty hand. We talked about what that meant. Uh, I read from Hybert and it said his dealings. Uh, are not malignant dealings. They're not capricious dealings. He's dealing us because he loves us. He's dealing with us as beloved children. And we're to humble ourselves as part of his program of discipline, purification, and training. And that fosters in us what? Peace, assurance, and it's calming to us as we humble ourselves under his mighty hand. We are giving ourselves over to him and we trust him implicitly and explicitly. And the realities of his being able to care for us are demonstrated in our lives. Uh, Gary's testified that to this morning. Uh, he can say without uh, equivocation that God is good and God has through the way provided for him. And so we, we see that evidenced every day. Jeff could tell you this week. All of us can tell you and testify that God is faithful and we we. Uh, humble ourselves under his mighty hands. He's faithful, so we know that. And then we got to this great uh, great understanding and maybe a surprise 
We humble ourselves that in order that he may exalt us in due season. We talked about the fact that that word literally means that he's going to lift us up and he is going to elevate us in position. And we talked about it, that that is partially fulfilled in the day in which we live, but it will ultimately be fulfilled in glory when we are in his presence forever, when we are ruling and reigning with him in the millennium. So uh, when we humble ourselves, he has promised to exalt us. He's elevate our position uh, in due season in his time when the time is right, just as he, through the humiliation of Christ, As we know from Philippians 2 verse, I believe it's 11, he, because Christ humbled himself, God has given him the name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's just the picture of his exaltation of Christ, of his son, uh, as he was humble before him. So, sort of what we talked about last week, Uh, today's study I really want to start with the word, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. The word casting. Uh, does anybody have another version? What are some other versions of the word casting? I love the word casting. Anybody, anybody have another version of, of casting uh, in another version? The word casting. And I'm going to ask, Terry, do you know how to pronounce that word? The Greek word is eperosantes. Uh, that's close. <laughs> Eperosantes, the Greek word, and it literally means to uh, uh, to throw over or to hand over. Uh, I love the analogy that one of my commentators said. It literally means to cast out a lure. It's an energetic action. So literally I found myself in the middle of a difficult week, uh, and I won't go on into it, but I literally, as I pray to the Lord, I do it verbally and out loud so I'm not distracted by my mind. Uh, I do that, and I'm literally going, I cast this exile, and I was literally was doing that, and, prep, and, this, and that's what we're supposed to do. We're literally to cast our cares on him. We exert energy, and we throw it away from us onto him. So the next time you in your prayer chamber, uh, closet, if you verbalize like I do, cast your cares upon him. Uh, I like what MacArthur says, we need to cast our discontentment. We need to cast our discouragement. We need to cast our despair. We need to cast our suffering and trust him knowing that he knows what's good for our lives. Cast it. Cast it. Literally do it. If you think that's silly, do it. Uh, cast your cares on him. So the word means, and it's part of humility, and, uh, and it says we, we relieve ourselves of our burdens when we cast them upon him. So Val's got some burdens to cast on the Lord, brother, do it. Cast it on the Lord, trusting that he hears. Not only does he hear, he pities us. And that word, we've talked about that a thousand times in here. Not only is he empathetic and sympathetic, but he can do something about it. You know, we can empathize with our buddies here in class, and and they can empathize and, and put themselves in our shoes, and maybe they've done, but sometimes they can't do anything about it. But he can because he's the omniscient, omnipotent, uh, omnipresent God. And so we cast our cares on him. And the, this, this phrase, casting all your cares upon him, is a quote from the Old Testament. And it's a quote from Psalm 55, uh, verse 22. Uh, this Psalm, David has been betrayed by his friends. He has been wounded. He's been... Uh, He's a friend that he took supper with and he supped with has betrayed him. Uh, later on, we see this is going to be a, a, a pointing to the Christ's rejection by Judas Iscariot. So this psalm is, is uh, both prophetic and it's autobiographical for David. But in this psalm, he's been betrayed by a friend and his heart is pained and he's grieved. And uh, he reacts like a human would do. First thing he says is, I want to fly away like a bird. He's hurt. And then the second thing he says is he wants revenge. And that's the natural reactions of flesh uh, to being betrayed by a friend. Uh, But he comes to as the Holy Spirit works in his heart, as he has the heart of God. Uh, He has a very, uh, very, very uh, tender heart. Uh, We see, look at verse 22, Psalm 55. He comes to the conclusion through all his struggling with his flesh, Flesh in his normative reaction, uh, he says, cast your burden on the Lord 
and he will sustain you. He will underline that. Never permit the righteous to be shaken. That doesn't mean we don't, we're not on shaky times, but ultimately we will not be spiritually moved. We ultimately not lose salvation. Ultimately he is going to work these things for our good and through the trials and tribulation he's developing character and obedience and peace in our hearts. So David, he's quoting David's Psalm, Psalm 55, 22. And we see this illustrated in throughout the whole Bible. Uh, as I started looking at illustrations just to bring this to your attention, uh, they were so numerous. There are hundreds of illustrations that would illustrate a child of God casting their care upon the Lord. And uh, I thought of uh, uh, three I thought they were particularly interesting to me. We know Paul. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through the following, uh, uh, Satan has, uh, is, uh, hindering, uh, uh, Paul. He has a thorn in the flesh and he asked God three times for God to remove the thorn from his flesh. Most people think it may be some eye issue, may have had malaria. He writes big in Galatians. There's some issues he may have had, but he asked God three times to remove it. So he's cast these cares like a fishing lure. God help me with this, whatever it is. Three times he asked that. So he's undoing his burdens to his father, asking for pity, asking for sympathy. And God gives him the best answer he could give him. What does he say? No, my grace is sufficient. And so he says, like I, I, uh, I, I told Chris this morning, uh, when God brings us to the point where we know we're weak and can't, we know he can, that's the best answer we can give from God. So we know that he cares for us, he'll sustain us, and our strength is made perfect in his weakness. And so Paul said, I gladly what rejoice in my infirmities and my weaknesses. That's where he brings us when we rejoice in that trusting in him in humility. So uh, that's one example. Uh, here's an example you may not have thought of, and it's uh, I know some of you ladies may have gone through this. First Samuel chapter 1, and this is a story of Hannah. You remember Hannah? Mm-hmm. Hannah, is, Hannah is the mother of, of uh, Samson, I mean of uh, Samuel. And so we see... Uh, in the first of this prophetic, in this book of prophets, we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah, uh, uh, she is being, uh, ostracized. She is being treated poorly. Uh, she's been, being provoked for her rival, uh, because of her misery that the Lord has closed her womb. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, look at verse 10. Her husband, verse 8, her husband says, why do you weep? Why aren't you eating? Why is your heart grieved? Uh, he's trying to comfort her, and I don't think his answer was very good. He says, am I not better than ten sons or daughters? <laughs> Probably a typical guy answer. <laughs> Just shake my hand to some of the things we say. <laughs> wow. She didn't answer him. That's probably a good thing. But in verse 10, Verse 10, look at this, casting her cares upon the Lord. And she was bitterness and her bitter in her soul, and she prayed to the Lord, and she wept in anguish. And she made a vow and said, Lord, if you'll look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor will come upon his head. And it happened as she was praying that Eli watched her mouth, who was a... Uh, a priest at that time. Now, Hannah spoke in her heart, but only her lips moved, for her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she's drunk. And Eli said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Put your wine down. But Hannah said, my Lord, I'm not drunk. I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Don't consider your maidservant a wicked woman, but out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken. So she's casting all her cares upon the Lord, trusting, knowing he's the only one able to pity her and do something about it. And God answers her prayer and he gives her a son. So that's one example of the myriad of examples in the scriptures 
that we can understand, cast all your cares upon the Lord, for he careth for you. Now, here's one that's a, it's an example of casting your cares upon the Lord, but it's also an example of be careful what you cast upon the Lord, Hezekiah. Hezekiah is king of Judah. Hezekiah is 39 years old, and Hezekiah is about to die at 39 years old. Let's look at the the story in uh, Isaiah 38. Now, I tell you this because uh, uh, something uh, happens. Uh, So so Hezekiah is 39 years old. He's king of Judah. Uh, uh, And look at Isaiah 38. Uh, Hezekiah is sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, 38.1, Isaiah. The Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you're going to die and not live. So he's given the death sentence at 39. Hezekiah cast his cares upon the Lord, trust in the Lord. Look what Hezekiah says in verse 2. Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember, O Lord, I pray, how I've walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So the Lord hears this prayer, but what it, but we, you have to look into it and further examine it. He prays for extension of life. God gives him 15 additional years to live. In those 15 additional years, he has a son, and that son's name is Manasseh. Manasseh is the most wicked king that was ever in Judah, and Manasseh led the people astray. For he, he, he caused the people of Israel to sacrifice their children to Moloch in the fire. So, and then at the end of Hezekiah's day, he had a proud heart and he showed the Babylonians all that was within his kingdom and he was proud about it. And so be careful what you ask for. God gave him 15 years, but out of that, in God's providence, he had a wicked son who led the nation astray. He was proud in his heart. And the sad thing, when, when he was told about this, you know what Hezekiah said? He said, Okay, well and good, at least that's not going to happen in my day. When God told him about the Babylonians that were going to conquer, his attitude was, at least it ain't going to happen in my day. That is sad, but that is a warning to us. Be careful what we pray for. God gave him the desires of his heart. Reminds me of the scripture. He forgave us. He gave us the desires of our heart, but sends leanness to our souls. So we need to be careful what we pray for. So this this casting our cares upon him, uh, those are some examples. Casting all our cares. What does all mean? Everything. Philippians, if you don't know this verse, memorize this verse. Philippians 4, 7, 4, 7, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious over anything, but in everything. By prayer and petition, here's my problem. I'm I'm okay with do not be anxious over anything, but in everything. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving is my problem. With thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the, and the result of that and the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So this is a dovetail verse. So when it says, cast all your cares, that's everything and nothing is excluded. Right? So we cast all our cares upon him. Not upon my wife, not upon my spouse, not upon my sons or daughters, not on my elders, not upon my pastor. We cast our cares on him, right? It's okay to do all those other things, but primarily we need to understand that him, he is the one who's going to be able to sustain and answer and give us strength. So we cast all our cares on him. I love what... uh I don't know who said this. I didn't give give, a, give credit. No anxious, distracting concerns, prompting fear or worry is excluded from this directive. Affliction naturally causes feelings of anxiety. We're to be aware of that. And so when we are in affliction, when we cast all our cares upon him, let me give you 
my verses that I quoted in my brain all week this week as I had a difficult work week and family week and all that kind of week. This is what I do. There is no secret to being spiritual or holy. It's casting your cares upon the Lord in humility. It's not a microwave thing where you just throw it in and in five seconds you're going to be good. It's a, it's a, it's a continual day by day looking and striving to Him, reading His Word, praying in the Spirit energizes all these things. But let me just give you some life verses that I camp out on. Psalm 94:19. This is comforting. This is David, a man after God's own heart. Uh, scripture tells us not to be anxious, but Scripture also realizes that we're going to be at times, right? And so 94.19 says, in the multitude of my anxieties, that means more than one, right? His comforts delight my soul, and his comforts are his word. His comforts are who he is, his attributes, his character. And so in the multitude, I know it says don't be anxious over anything and don't worry and cast your cares, but the reality of whom we are as individual humans and our weaknesses, David says, in the multitude of my anxieties, his comforts delight my soul. So uh, chew on that one, Psalm 94, uh, 19. Uh, another one I love to chew on is uh, uh, Psalm 37. Uh, actually, Keith actually preached on this uh, a couple of, uh, it's probably been, uh, who knows how long it's been. Uh, but uh, uh, Psalm 37, Psalm 37, 1, 8, and you see this one word and it says, do not fret, fret. That word fret is Keith uh, exegeted it. Uh, described it, he says, don't get overworked up, don't get agitated, don't be get excessively excited, stop. So, when you're going through your anxieties, everybody in here, and the multitude of those anxieties, stop. Stop it. It's a command, isn't it? It's a command. Stop. So we say, we see 37.1, do not fret nor be envious because we understand that God is in control and those enemies against you, the circumstances against you are going to pass away. They are temporary and they are purposeful and they are God ordained. Uh, just another example to tell on me, confess your faults, right? Uh, I have a tendency to do this, and I told Melanie, and I've done it before, and I've come from a long history of men that do this in our family. When I have a difficult, I had a day from hell. Okay, that was my emotional reaction, like Job reacted, we react to things. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit immediately, no, it's not a day from hell. It's a day ordained by God for his glory, for his purposes. So my understanding of this may be this, but he, in his grace, turns me and say, what am I trying to teach you in this? And it's cast your cares upon him. We are, we are very hard-headed, stiff-necked people. It don't matter if you're, if you're uh, who, who you are. Uh, unless you're Christ, you struggle, right? Uh, even Christ as a man struggled with these things. Uh, so we cast our cares upon him, knowing he cares for us. Another verse I camp out on, uh, Psalm 34. Uh, I dare to say this is my favorite psalm, but I will tell you, I've told you that a hundred times, haven't I? I got a lot of favorites, but, but let me just read 34 and, uh, this is all read. I've memorized it over the years. 34, four, uh, psalm, cast all your cares upon him. I sought the Lord, verse 4, and he heard me and he delivered me from what? All my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were ashamed. This poor man cried out and what? The Lord heard all of his uh, troubles and he saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Anybody tasted and seen that the Lord is good this week? Yeah. You know what it means to taste something? And that gives you wheat your appetite for more, doesn't it? So when we taste, Gary's tasted, Val's tasted, we've tasted this week that God is good. We want more of that. It's an appetizer, and it stimulates our taste buds. And so 
The psalmist is saying, cast your cares, you cry out, and the Lord hears you. Taste that and give you an appetite for more. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is a man who trusts in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord, what does that say? Shall not lack any good thing. And he defines what good is. We don't. And you can go through that. Uh, look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. Look at verse 17. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears. He delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have what? A broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's a humble person. We talked about that last week is defining, uh, uh, defining what humility is via scripture. And so, uh, he saves those who have a contrite heart. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers out of them all. So we see God's faithfulness. We see his, uh, we can trust him as we cast all our cares upon him. Now this stunning statement. Anybody chewing on this pretty good on the, uh, on the Zoom? Yes, yes. Good. Very good. Very good. Glad you're with us. Uh, we're doing it upon him. Look at this startling statement. For he cares about you. That ought to have a, you know, in the Psalms, it's Selah, S-E-L-A-H. That means chew on that a while. Chew on that a while, for he cares for you. Uh, uh, the word literally means in the order of the Greek, to him, it is a care concerning to you. Anything that's a care to you is a care to him. Nothing is too trivial uh, that he doesn't care about that. My mother-in-law prays for parking spots when she's driving through a crowded parking spot. Everything, Chris does that. Everything that's a care to you is a care to him. Don't think to yourself, I don't want to bother him about this. Cast all your cares upon him. Right? There are no trivialities. No trivialities with God. We may think they are. He will determine if they are or they aren't, and he will answer accordingly, right? But we're not to, you know. Now, if you're obviously self-centered and self-absorbed and, and thinking about yourself and your prayer life and you want this and this out of, you know, obviously, uh, but, uh, but if it's a not a black or white, a moral issue, cast your cares on it. Cast your cares on it. Uh, I love what it says here. It is a belief, it is the belief that God cares that marks off Christianity from all other religions, which under all varieties, talking about the other religions of form, are occupied with the task of making God care, of awakening him by sacrificial prayer act that would awake the slumbering action, deeds, and works of a deity. The cross the resurrection remained the unshakable demonstration that God is loving us and is concerned with us. So we know that. He does care about us. We cast all our cares upon him, for he cares for us. Uh, does everybody understand that? Uh, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he'll exalt you in due season. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. That's the imperative command that we are to relish and chew on and think about. I only got three more pages. We'll never get here. That's okay. Now, <clears throat> as we've always done, there's always a doctrine or a teaching behind the imperative. So as has been in all the seven foundational imperatives, we have doctrine that supports this. And then we go up to chapter five, <clears throat> verse one. And so what Peter's going to do, is through teaching and doctrine, he is going to codify or represent the imperative. And let me look at First Peter chapter 5. Uh, look at verse 5, and he's going to use some examples. And uh, as I have these on the board, he's going to give us some encouragement for the imperative. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort... I am a fellow elder, and I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and I am a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, 
which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being masters over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that doesn't fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists proud pride, but God gives grace to the humble. So here we see the doctrine behind the imperative, and I have in the in the notes for today the doctrine that supports. First of all, we see Peter is an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. He's an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. He saw, that's what an apostle is. Apostle is someone sent by God, and he is sent by God. He has seen Christ. He's an eyewitness of Christ. He has been given authority to start churches. As you understand, most of the scripture is written, New Testament scripture is written by apostles, with the exception of Mark and Luke and Jude, uh, perhaps, and there may be another one, uh, whoever wrote Hebrews. But uh, 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 God has given apostles specific authority to start churches. They've seen him. They've witnessed his resurrection. They've witnessed his life. So Peter is saying he's an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. He saw Christ suffer. He saw Christ humiliated. He saw Christ uh, rejected. He saw Christ being accused of being the devil. He saw all men run from him and turn from him. He saw all these things. And so Peter is an eyewitness of the suffering of Christ. And as we, as we get into second Peter, which will start in two weeks, God willing, uh, uh, Peter, uh, enumerates on this and he, he, uh, expands on this, uh, about the sufficiency of scripture. Look at second Peter, uh, chapter one, verse 16. Second Peter, one book over, chapter 1, 16 through 20, is Peter supports this, this uh, comment that he's eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. Second Peter 1, 16, for we, the apostles, uh, the disciples, uh, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the dynamite, the dunamis, the power, and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He's alluding to the transfiguration. When Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain with Jesus and Pete and Jesus was transfigured there before them all. That's in, in Matthew 17, 1 through 8. And when he unveiled his glory, he, he revealed to them uh, what had been veiled in his flesh. And so I just picture it opening up in just the intrinsic whiteness, the holiness, the glory of Christ. It is veiled in human flesh. So the disciples are eyewitnesses of this glory that has been temporarily covered in the flesh of Christ. And it revealed to them who he was before and who he would be afterward when he's going to display his glory. So when he says he's eyewitnesses of the sufferings of Christ, he meant that through the transfiguration. He meant that that he actually saw the sufferings of Christ. And look at Hebrews uh, chapter 1. Hebrews 1, as we see that Christ is better than the law, better than angels, better than Melchizedek, better than anything is Christ. He's the fulfillment ultimately of it all. Now look at Hebrews 1. God, who at various times and in various ways in the time past has spoken to the Father by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, right? Whom He's made heir of the whole, of, of the whole world. Verse three, who's the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, and He's better than the angels. He's obtained an inheritance that's more excellent than they have. So we see Christ, and we see Peter, as He says, I'm an eyewitness of His 
uh, suffering. So we see that's one of the doctrinal statements. And that doctrinal statement affirms that Peter's an apostle, and it motivates him uh, to be a servant of Christ because what Christ has suffered. And I love what it says here. If you'll turn back to First Peter from Hebrews, uh, this is very endearing to us, and this motivates us as his people. Look what he says. He says, I am a fellow elder. Peter, in his humility, and this humility was a learned behavior. What was Peter's attitude before he got humbled by his rejection of Christ three times? Remember, uh, Jesus said, Satan wants to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, and afterward, when you repent, you're going to be useful for me? What did Peter say? Everybody may deny you, but not me. Now Peter, autobiographically, as God humbles him, says, we are fellow elders. That word fellow, he says, he says, he is placing himself as an apostle on the same level as the elders in this church that he's writing to. He's not speaking down to them. He's not being a superior to an inferior, but he's saying we're fellow. That word is koinonia. We have this commonness. We are both partakers. We are, we are taking part in something with someone other than us. So Peter in, in humility is saying, Hey, I've been there. I was a proud guy, but now we're fellow believers. So just because there are elders in this church and there are going to be four new deacons in this church, we are all to submit. There is no, uh, we're not a hierarchical system where we are better than you. We are fellow believers. We are all called to submit and be clothed with humility together. So Peter says, as a often tip, often take book, to authenticate, that's better, that he's eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. He, he's motivated by his identity that we're in this together and that he's not speaking down to the elders at this church, but he's saying we're fellow elders. And so uh, there is no superiority. Remember what Jesus said to Peter after he rose from the dead. He specifically went to Peter in John 21, and he looked at Peter and he said, what? Does anybody remember what he said? Do you love me? He asked him that three times because he denied him three times. He said, do you, do you agape love me, Peter? Do you love me unconditionally like I love you? And Peter said, I love you like a brother. I love you like a brother. Feed my sheep. And so this is Peter obediently in humility obeying God, obeying Christ. And so three times he says, do you love me? Uh, agape. And then finally, uh, Peter says, you know, I love you like a brother. And, and Jesus said, love me like a brother. So understanding it's got to be a progressive work of the spirit in us. But uh, so we see that. Uh, and so that's what affirms uh, and supports the command uh, to humble ourselves. Look at this beautiful thought here. He's a witness of the suffering and another thing that's going to be the doctrine that's going to support the imperative is that he's a partaker of glory that will be revealed. The word partaker is konos, which is koinonia, which is fellowship, which means there's a partnership. We have a commonness together, and that commonness is that we are going to be are going to be able to see the revealing of Christ. That word revealing means public manifestation. And it specifically points to this fact that we are going to see Christ as he is. And his glory that has been veiled is going to be seen. And we are going to see it. Scripture tells us that uh, 1 John 3, uh, 1 through 3, uh, as we see him, as we see him as he really is, we're going to be like him, right? So we're going to be able to be partakers of the glory that will be. Look what I got underlined. Glory and suffering cannot be separated. Glory and suffering cannot be separated. They are synergistic. They are mutually inclusive one another. So if we're going to suffer with Christ, 
which we've been talking about that throughout this whole book, we are also going to revel in his glory when he reveals himself to us at his second coming. So we, we anticipate that and we anticipate, as Paul said, I reckon that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed, right? So another way we deal with it is we understand and we look forward in faith and anticipate the glory that will be revealed when we see uh, Jesus Christ. Everybody understand that? Any questions from, uh, from our Zoom guys uh, that you cannot separate glory from suffering, and they are mutually inclusive, and they encourage us in the sufferings. Uh, so that is the doctrine behind humility. As we look at this, uh, I have a few more minutes today, don't I? I don't have to leave at 10. But if you got to leave, uh, you guys feel free to leave. Uh, Chris and Jim, if you got to go. Uh, the next thing we see is a uh, future reward. Uh, now, this future reward, I wish Terry was still here, but Dave is with us. This is a this is an amazing statement to us as elders, and it is a statement that should humble us and it should encourage us. And uh, look at this, what, what the Bible says, the doctrine behind humility. And he goes from the top to the apostleship, and he goes to the leaders in the church, and then he's going to go to the rest of the congregation, the rest of, the, of God's people. But he specifically says this to those that God has given to shepherd a local church. Look what it says uh, in verse 4. When the chief shepherd... Uh, uh, Jesus is called the good shepherd and the chief shepherd and the chief shepherd, uh, chief, uh, what did I say? Chief, good, and great, right? Chief, good, and great. So this is a chief. That means the arch shepherd, the, the shepherd that is over every sheep. So as, as Christ is our shepherd over us elders, we are his under shepherd. And so those of you in the body, as God has ordained it, you are our under shepherds. And we are entrusted with this great task of helping to shepherd you. But look what it says to us, talking to the elders. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that doesn't fade away. Wow. What do you think about that? Let me read. Uh, what, uh, what Hybert says, uh, the elders that, that faithful fulfillment of the injunctions would be followed by bestowal of reward. The prospect of the future should have its impact upon their performance in the present. The difficulties of their work as well as their, as we know this, we talk about this every Tuesday and, the in conscious awareness of our inadequacies and failures would often discourage, but to prevent God's servants from being discouraged, there is only one remedy, and that means to turn their eyes to the coming of Christ. So Peter knew the work of being an elder and a leader in a church is discouraging, and it makes you aware of your inability to do it, and the consciousness that why am I in this role? And why I can't control my own self? How, how am I going to minister to others? But he says this is, this is, this is what encourages us to see the end. There's reward for that. And so the reward for that is literally a crown of glory. In scripture, crown has got two words. It's got diadem, diadema, diadema, I'm not a Greek. Uh, that means sovereign crown, and this is the Stephanos crown. It's the uh, it's the, uh, the victory crown given to those who finished a task and have won a race. Uh, but but Scripture says, and this is the this is the doctrine behind being humble, is that there's going to be reward, and so we we anticipate that, and that that reward anticipation encourages through the inadequacies of our inability. So uh, that's the doctrine behind it. Now, I didn't, I'm not going to spend much time with this because I did this when I was, uh, uh, when I was uh, initially uh, asked to be an elder. And so I did this in my two-week study on this. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time. 
but it just tells you some of the motivation for being an elder. And I'll start in verse two. Uh, we are to shepherd. That means to lead gently and to lead them, not get behind them and push them. We're to lead them by example. Shepherd the flock of God as an overseers. We don't do it because we have to. We do it willingly. We don't do it for extra money. And, uh, believe you me, there is none in it. But, uh, but eagerly and we are not to be masters, but, but, over over the flock, but but it, notice it says that we've been entrusted to a flock, to those entrusted. That means God has ordained those in the church that have been entrusted to the leadership of the church, and we are dependent upon God, and he's brought them in, and we are to be good managers of them. So that's what it says. It, what it literally means those entrusted to you, and we're to be an example. And so that's the motivation. We're to lovingly uh, guide, and uh, and we're to do it uh, with not a haughty abuse of power, but to do it in humility. And then as he closes is it out, look at verse 5. We've got uh, mutual submission. Now he's talking to the rest. He starts talking about himself as an apostle. Then he talks to the uh, to the elders who lead the church, and now he's going to talk to everybody within a local church, to all of us as believers. He's speaking to all of us. Look at he says in verse 5. All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. That word submissive there, we need to, uh, we literally mean to voluntarily submit and humble ourselves before God. It's a attitude of the heart. And it says, when it says likewise, just as elders are to be examples and to be eager and to be willing and to be overseers and to do it in humility, so we all as one body are to be examples to each other, willingly loving one another, uh, and it's all mutually inclusive. Uh, and then it says, uh, one of the things that's fascinating about this, clothed with humility. Uh, that's an attitude, but that means uh, to put on it like a garment. So we're to, you know, Scripture tells us to put on and put off. We are to put on, it's a deliberate act of the will, we're to put on humility uh, like a garment. And it's a picture of a slave putting on an apron to serve, to serve. So when it says to put on humility, all of us within the body, we're all to take this work, uh, to act of our wills. We are to put on this garment. We are to put on this apron and gird ourselves up to be slaves to each other, to serve one another. None of us are, are better than one another. All of us are important, and all of us need to mutually serve one another. And that is demonstrated exactly what Jesus did. Remember John 13, we're in an upper room before he ministers to his disciples, before he dies. What's the first thing he does? Look at John 13. This is what it means to clothe yourself with humility as defined by Scripture. Literally means to put on an apron like a slave and serve. And it's and this is what Jesus did. Look at John 13. John 13. First thing he did, John 13, verse, let's start with verse 2. Supper being ended, the devil's already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he'd come from God, and he was going to God. Verse 4, he rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. He poured water into the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. That's what it means to clothe yourselves in humility. You put on an apron or a, or a garment for slave and start serving. And so Jesus, as the example, he says, the servant is not better than his master. You call me Lord, I am your master, and if I've done these things to you, you need to do that to others. So Jesus gives us the example of clothing himself with humility. Uh, and look what it says, clothed with humility for, because, that word because, God resists the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. That word resist the proud, God literally sets himself in battle array against individuals who are self-absorbed and self-centered and self-centered. God literally is going to fight against you. He resists you. God hates pride. And that's why it says pride goes before a destruction in a haughty spirit. Haughty. You look down your nose at other people. God hates that. Because God knows we're all sinners by grace, right? Need to be saved by grace. So God says uh, you need to clothe yourself in humility because God resists pride. He, re- he, re- he resists independence. He resists self-absorption. And he relishes dependence on him. He, he wants us to clothe ourselves with, in- with, uh, with uh, humility. For he resists the proud. Look, said, but in contrast to God resisting pride, but when the big words in scripture, but instead of resisting you for being proud, he gives grace to the humble. Such lowly minded individuals, conscience of their own unworthiness, gladly acknowledge their dependence on God and rest in his sufficiency upon such God continuously bestows his grace his unmerited favor God actively responds to the attitude of those who humble themselves before him so instead of being resisted by God you are supported continuously every day by a gracious God right end of lesson end of story Next week, we're going to talk about resisting the devil, and we'll spend the rest. Next week, we'll conclude this great book, Resist the Devil, what that means to resist him, how to resist him, uh, knowing his methodology, know how he's going to approach you and I, and we'll talk about resisting the devil as we finish this uh, book. Thank you, guys, for joining with us. I hope you were able to hear it, and uh, we look forward uh, to seeing us all together uh, at one time, let me pray, and then uh, we'll we'll uh, see you guys in church. Thank you, Father, that you are gracious to us, and that you give grace to us in our humility. Help us to humble ourselves before your mighty hand. Help us to call upon your name, cast our cares upon you. We thank you for your word that encourages us. We thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you for the evidences we've heard from our, our, uh, our fellow Sunday school members this morning. May that encourage us in your faith and help us to finish this race you've given us to run. Give us strength for this week, and may it be to your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.